The Curbsiders Podcast is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only, and the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. Furthermore, the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of those and should not be interpreted to reflect official policy or position of any entity, aside from possibly cash like moral hospital and affiliate outreach programs, if indeed there are any. In fact, there are none. Pretty much, we are responsible if you screw up. You should always do your own homework and let us know when we're wrong. So we're back. This is another COVID Cakes episode. Paul and Stuart are not here, unfortunately, but we do have a great team and uh, we're going to introduce them now and they're going to tell you about what they're going to be talking about. So first up, the great Rahul Ganatra. Rahul, how are you doing? I'm doing great. How are you, Matt? I, you know, I couldn't be more fantastic. This is what I love to do with my evenings. Talk about COVID. So tell the audience, Rahul, what are you going to be telling them about tonight? Tonight, we're going to be talking about the ACT-1 trial, the preliminary report that's been making a lot of news, just published in the New England Journal of Medicine. And we're also going to talk about a trial published in The Lancet, looking at the use of a triple combination therapy uh, on uh, reduction to the time of negative nasopharyngeal swab. All right. Also with us is Emmy, Dr. Emmy Okamoto. Emmy, welcome back. Thanks. Yeah, good to be here. So I am going to refresh everyone on what RT-PCR is and how much we should be trusting those results, particularly when they come back negative. Okay. And with us, as always tonight, is the wonderful Sarah Phoebe Roberts. Sarah, good to have you here, as always. Thanks, Matt. So I don't know if everybody has been listening to the news, but I am here to set the record straight about what the CDC has or has not said about fomites and COVID transmission. All right. So without further ado, let's get on with it. We wanted to start it off a little bit light. And Sarah, I actually want to start with you because uh, I want to talk a little bit about fomites. I understand (laughs) that there's some misinformation out there. And then I, uh, so you tell me first what you want to talk about. Then I have some follow-up questions for you. Absolutely. So I, I'm not even sure if misinformation is the right word. I think it's more of sort of a, a negative space, a, a lack of information that's been spun into something else, which is basically the CDC, as we know, has the uh, page on their website where they talk about kind of the basics of coronavirus, what we do and don't know, um, and how the disease is transmitted. And so previously, the uh, the issue of surfaces, also known as fomites, had its own dedicated section that basically recommended wiping down surfaces and being cautious about, you know, touching an elevator button and then putting your whole hand in your mouth or whatever. Um, <laughs> so what happened is that recently the CDC just kind of reorganized that page. They didn't remove any substantial information about surfaces because, frankly, there wasn't a lot of substantial information. Everything is very new. Um, what they did was they moved the the brief mention of fomites into a section about titled more or less, the disease does not spread easily in these ways. So again, there was not really any, there was no new evidence. And they went on the record saying, we did not make this change based on any emerging evidence that fomites are no longer a risk, but more so we were just trying to reorganize things. Uh, and, you know, in essence, surfaces are not necessarily the most dangerous mode of transmission for this disease, which we've kind of known from the start that it, that's not the primary way this disease spreads. So however, this was picked up by some major media outlets um, and framed as CDC says surfaces are no longer like a, a dangerous um, 
uh, mode of transport for the disease. Uh, but really, nothing's changed. Everything is exactly the same. <laughs> so, yeah. So from like the first ever COVID episode we did where most, you know, on most surfaces, it's gone in 24 hours. But on like the mm -hmm. plastic or metal surfaces, Stainless maybe steel. up to a couple days. Right. But it's still the same case of um, most of the uh, the viral load is diminished. The half-life is short. So yeah. even within like six hours or something, more than 50% of the viral load is gone. And I've seen other pieces that have commented on just the – that it would be fairly challenging. I think there was a New York Times article I recommended a couple weeks ago that um, – and again, it's not to it's not to recommend people stop washing hands or stop disinfecting surfaces, but more so just it's not the primary way that this disease is spread. Right. And so there's also a lot of other mitigating factors about how much um, viral inoculum is present and sort of what you're doing with your hand. And, you know, so there's like how recently it was placed can, there. And so can I interrupt you then and ask you, of course, uh, so are you are you are you doing anything weird with your groceries or are you just like. You buy a bag of chips and you're just like right in there, day uh, one, uh, yes. hour one. I, like Kirby, I just insert the entire bag in my mouth. I don't even <laughs> open it. Um, it's frowned upon in my household. Um, anyway, uh, so I actually, it never occurred to me to Clorox groceries until a friend of mine in New York City who has been very active in PPE drives um, recommended it. And so, yes, I began the process of taking a Clorox spray and uh, a microfiber cloth and <laughs> wiping down my, my oranges and my milk. And <laughs> so yeah. we'll have to link to this. There, there's a JAMA article. I want to see what Emmy and Rahul are doing, but there's a JAMA article. They, they weren't really recommending that people are like Clorox wiping stuff. They're like, because of like what we talked about within hours, within the first 24 hours, most of it's gone. They're saying, just put stuff away. Uh, you can unbox stuff if it can be like put in a, in a, in a, fresh container. Rahul, what are you doing with your groceries? Like what about produce? Well, yeah. I mean, for dry goods, we would basically put them aside and kind of not touch them for 24 hours and then feel very good that, you know, any virus particles that had made it onto those things were, were probably dead. And it, we just tried to remind each other to wash our hands and, you know, be smart about that. Yeah. Um, I mean, I won't lie. There was a period early on when we were like aggressively scrubbing bananas, oh, yeah. you know, like, Same. like fools, but <laughs> I'm, I'm happy to report <laughs> that we are no longer doing that in our household. Yeah. Emmy, do you eat produce? And, and if so, what are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> yes. I mean, same for me. My mom watched a YouTube video from a doctor who's like, wash your clementines like you wash your hands. So she's like, 20 seconds, you know, for the clementines. <laughs> I, I think the JAMA paper says you can just rinse them with water. And then, so I'm still, I think, I think my wife, I know my wife uses some sort of a veggie scrub on the produce, but otherwise we're just kind of either unboxing stuff or just letting it sit for 24 hours or more before we, we touch it. So anyway, fomites, the, the bottom line is fomites aren't the biggest problem with this whole thing, but wash your hands and, and, you know, be thoughtful. Uh, Emmy, was there something about rats? Yeah, yeah. Did you guys see a CDC warning that rats may become more aggressive? I in did the COVID not. Era? <laughs> I do not like that at all. That's very clear. I lived in New York. That's a hard one. To <laughs> yeah. Talk. So it's it's new, particularly New York, because the restaurants aren't open. So where do most of the foods get their rats get their food is from the restaurant and whatnot. So with the restaurant closures, expect hungry rats at your doorstep. We're going to have to apologize to our producer, Deb, who wanted this to be a good news section. So the, <laughs> I, I believe rats being more aggressive is not good news, Emmy, but we'll, we'll let it slide. 
ACP is the professional home for internists and a fierce advocate for the internal medicine profession and for patients. ACP offers so many great resources. MixApp is fun and it will help you crush your boards. They have online POCUS learning activities where you can claim CME credit. Plus, once things start up again, their live POCUS courses are fantastic. More recently, I've been using the ACP Physician's Guide for COVID-19 as kind of my home base for keeping up with everything going on during the pandemic. It includes a clinical overview of infection control, patient care guidance, and information related to billing and coding to help you navigate telehealth. There's also many online modules that offer free CME for members. These are just a few of the many reasons ACP members are proud to be internists and to be part of the college. For a limited time, post-training docs save $100 on their first-year membership dues through June 30th. Visit acponline.org forward slash member and use the code ACP discount. And I think we're going to move on to talking about the Act Act 1 trial, which was like the big news. As big a news as the grocery stuff is, uh, this this was the, the big news, Rahul, so I'll I'll give you some of the, you know, some of the abstract version and then you tell us how you read this trial. So this was this was Remdesivir, this was the big uh Dr. Fauci trial. Actually, he wasn't the lead investigator, but um this is the NIH trial and it was a randomized placebo-controlled double-blind trial IV Remdesivir versus placebo and there was over a thousand patients in it. And they read this as a positive trial that the recovery time was significantly shorter in patients receiving remdesivir. And there was a trend towards a mortality benefit, but it was not statistically significant. Uh, the confidence inter- interval crosses one. So Rahul, how do you read this trial? Is there anything to key to point out to to the audience? Yes. I mean, this is probably one of the most talked about trials in recent memory for me. I mean, I can't remember anything before COVID-19 that kind of got this much media attention and particularly around like the details of the design. I mean, it is kind of thrilling to see all the, you know, nitty gritty details of the methods come under uh, such public scrutiny. But, you know, before this paper was published, there was a lot of attention paid to the uh, reality that the primary outcome was changed in this trial. And that's something that happens uh, from time to time in randomized controlled trials. And it can be a problem Okay, it can be a problem if you think that that makes it more likely that a positive result is explained by the authors having done that. Okay, and there was a lot of great reporting uh, in uh, Stat News um, that we uh, touched on briefly in our last episode where they actually got a lot of detail. They spoke to a lot of people at the NIH about that decision. And after reading the paper, I and many others feel relatively reassured that changing the primary outcome was kind of a non-issue in this study. What they basically did was they wanted to make sure that we would see uh, a benefit if there is one. Um, And they were worried that, you know, a single assessment at 15 days uh, might have missed that because the study population was was quite sick. So primary outcome is something something important to look for in the study. And uh, I encourage people to look up the uh, protocol on clinicaltrials.gov. And you can just click tabular view and you can see right away the change history uh, is the primary outcome, uh, the current one, the same as the original, or is it different? So in this study, the primary outcome was changed, but that was done, they say in the paper, before there was any knowledge of the outcomes. And uh, the change uh, was something that was uh, kind of trivial. And uh, had they stuck with the original primary outcome, that 
still would have led to a significant result. So that's not a problem in my book. Rahul, this from this study, it looks like they they have all those curves that nicely the the blue and red curves and the overall curves separate, uh, meaning you know they found a significant difference between the groups. But the curves, if then the, when they looked at it for this kind of subgroup analysis, there was patients not requiring oxygen, patients requiring oxygen, then patients requiring like non-invasive ventilation, high flow, or ECMO invasive ventilation. So basically de- varying degrees of sickness. And when they looked at it that way, the the patients who were hospitalized and requiring oxygen seemed like they gained the most benefit. That's right. That is what they saw in, boy, what figure is this? This is figure two. Um, I mean, anytime you see Kaplan-Meier curves like this with, you know, overlapping confidence intervals, you have to ask that question, you know, is there a subgroup that seemed to be driving the, the benefit here? And, um, you know, there's a couple other things that you can um, assess about uh, curves like this. Um, I'll just say that in each case, um, it gets a little bit hard to tell for um, the subgroup of patients who were on high flow or non-invasive and for the subgroup of patients who were intubated or on ECMO. But at least for patients not requiring oxygen and patients receiving supplemental O2, you can see that the uh, patients who got remdesivir, the, the point estimates were always higher than placebo. And the confidence intervals are pretty wide. So I suspect that the reason that we saw this benefit in patients who were receiving oxygen was a result of the fact that they that group simply had the most number of patients. I um, see. All the other all the other groups were smaller. So, you know, it 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 suggests that patients who are hospitalized and requiring oxygen may be the driver of benefit. But we unfortunately, with sicker patient populations, we can't really say whether or not they would also benefit because those uh, groups were much smaller. Right. And and Rahul, they mentioned having a lot of secondary outcomes. And, and which ones were you paying attention to and, and do you think were important to, to look at? You know, this was kind of an unusual case where we have this uh, detailed paper trail about changing the primary outcome to uh, a, a secondary outcome. So I was interested in the original primary outcome, and that was also uh, a, uh, a difference that reached statistical significant, significance. Um, there was also uh, an estimate of mortality by 14 days. And I'll just highlight that this is still a preliminary report. We are expecting that the authors um, in the study group will publish the complete results once all patients reach day 28. Um, but in this study, I was really interested uh, in whether or not there was a mortality difference. Um, it doesn't look like in the overall population um, there was a difference, uh, 7.1% versus 11.9% um, between the remdesivir and the placebo group, respectively. Um, we could get into a whole separate discussion about uh, the p-value and you know what that means as far as our, our judgment of, of this difference. But my interpretation of this is that Um, you know, this was a secondary outcome. We did not see a mortality, uh, benefit of remdesivir in this trial, but taken in the context of the, of the study as a whole, this is the first randomized control trial that suggests any benefit for a meaningful clinical outcome, um, for, for this disease. And so for that reason alone, this is really exciting. And Rahul, it sounds like we can't necessarily say it doesn't work for the sickest patients or those who were less sick at this time. We can just say overall for this group of patients, it seemed like the recovery time was quicker. And so remdesivir is potentially part of a treatment regimen going forward for COVID-19 if we if we think we have a patient that would have fit the, this study. 
That's absolutely right. And, you know, the authors do do some subgroup analyses to try to tease that out a little bit better. They did stratify uh, by patients who had uh, symptoms for greater than 10 days and less than 10 days and found that both subgroups still had a benefit if they received remdesivir. So the way that the authors package all this is that you should really consider whether or not a patient who's hospitalized and requires oxygen can get started on remdesivir kind of as early as possible before they progress to intubation or requiring ECMO, because in this study, the greatest benefit was seen in those patients who, uh, who, who required oxygen and were not more sick. Yeah. So overall, we have this study showing that the primary outcome time to recovery was statistically significant. Mortality was not statistically significant, but lower with remdesivir. So, so what is the future of doing randomized placebo-controlled trials with remdesivir? That is a really important question. So how are we going to conduct studies in the future if we now have what could be considered a standard of care for this disease? Well, there's two ways to go about this. One is every trial of a novel therapeutic should be what's called an active controlled trial rather than a placebo control. So you test the hypothesis, is drug X superior to remdesivir, yes or no? And in a placebo controlled trial, that question is just, is drug X superior to a placebo? That would be, in my opinion, the, the right way to do it. It's sort of less preferable way to study that question is uh, what's called a non-inferiority trial. And I know people have seen these before. Um, non-inferiority trials are appropriate when there is an established standard of care and you're willing to accept a treatment that might be a little bit worse than the standard of care if there's other benefits, like it's cheaper, um, there's fewer side effects, we have more of it available. So a non-inferiority trial would be another alternative, but in my view, future studies going forward are probably going to be uh, active controlled uh, compared against remdesivir or uh, non-inferiority. And another big study to hit um, since our last episode was a triple combination study um, published in The Lancet. And this was looking at a combination of interferon beta, lopinavir, ritonavir, and ribavirin called combination therapy. Um, compared to a therapy of just lopinavir, ritonavir, and there was no other uh, placebo group. It was based in Hong Kong and open-label randomized. And what they found was um, that they recruited 127 patients, and they followed them with nasopharyngeal swabs and found that um, those in the combined treatment group had a shorter um, time to negative swab seven days as compared to the control group, which again was lapinavir, ritonavir, which was 12 days to um, negative swab. And so they know in the abstract that early triple antiviral therapy, the combined therapy was safe and superior to lapinavir, ritonavir alone. What do you think of, of that, Rahul? Lots of, lots of therapies going on and, and we have PCR, but, but wondering about the clinical outcomes as well. So as Emmy really nicely summarized, this study um, is, well, this is a great example, actually, of an active controlled trial, um, like we were just talking about, um, because the, the comparator group in this case was lopinavir ritonavir alone. There was no placebo. And as Emmy was saying, the primary outcome in this study was time to a negative nasopharyngeal swab. So a couple things that stood out to me reading and appraising this 
trial. The first thing I'll say is that this was funded by uh, not the manufacturer of any of the uh, component medications. Um, that's an important thing to, to be aware of. Um, this was done in Hong Kong, which I'll also point out is kind of uh, unique among the countries of the world, really, in terms of how COVID-19 has played out. The pandemic came under really rapid control in Hong Kong because of their experience with uh, the SARS outbreak in 2003. So uh, people in Hong Kong, you know, had kind of been through something like this before, and they had some sort of aggressive public health policies that kind of um, affect how we generalize these results. Um and the other thing that stuck out to me um, as far as the uh, setup and design is um, uh, who was included in this study. So um, all patients in the study were hospitalized with PCR-confirmed COVID-19. They all had to have been within 14 days of symptom onset. And they all had to have at least one uh, vital sign abnormality. That's what is captured by this NEWS2 score. And you can look that up and see what it is on NDCalc. Um, they started everybody uh, consecutively enrolled patients on the treatment within 48 hours of admission, and they collected daily swabs for PCRs from multiple sites, um, a common theme we're seeing in these studies to try to get an understanding of the shedding of virus from multiple sites here. Um, I think that's all that stuck out to me about the design. I would be happy to summarize some more of the results for you and take you through my appraisal. Yeah, I, I just, what struck me about this, Rahul, Emmy, is like interferon and ribavarin, ribavarin. I I thought that was like a very toxic treatment that we used to use for, what was it, hep C, like before we had these other drugs. And, you know, now now we're giving it to like mildly sick patients with COVID, <laughs> COVID-19. So I had to do some Googling to fill in those knowledge gaps in my brain. Like, what were these drugs used for before this study? So people may remember from a previous show that we've done on lopinavir, ritonavir, that um, is a protease inhibitor that was developed for HIV. And the I think the most common adverse effects with lopinavir, ritonavir tend to be GI upset. Um, but it's a, it's a PO drug, so it's, you know, a part of the regimen for, for some patients with HIV. Ribavirin was used as a, a part of a combination treatment for hepatitis C, and this basically is also a nucleotide analog, kind of like remdesivir, except this is a guanosine analog. And this one I actually don't really remember uh, as far as side effects, if this one was you know difficult to tolerate or not. This was also a, a PO drug, so this is something that you know outpatients could get. And then interferon beta-1b. This was really like opening a dusty book in my brain back to the days of medical school. I had to relearn there are different kinds of interferon, okay? And beta-1b is a subcutaneous injection that uh, is currently used for the treatment of MS. So um, uh, outpatients, you know, people who are kind of on maintenance regimens with MS, um, interferon beta-1b is often a part of that. And that's thought to work by uh, increasing suppressor T-cell activity and reducing pro-inflammatory cytokines. Okay, so I'm misremembering, but uh, in, but these are definitely older therapies. It was interesting. I guess the whole idea behind the early drug trials is like we're trying to find something that's like already around that we can just repurpose, and and that, I guess that's why they're that's why they're trying to throw everything at this at COVID nineteen. Correct, and I do seem to remember treatments for Hep C being horrible before the current era of of curative drugs that we have. 
And those were weeks, months of, of interferon. And this was, I think, three doses or so. Yes. Yeah. So for those therapies, it, there was no placebo, but they compared it against lopinavir, ritonavir, which the New England Journal paper showed wasn't effective. So why do you think that was? It's a good question. The authors say in the text of the paper that the use of a placebo would generally not be considered acceptable in Chinese culture. And uh, I don't have any particular expertise to be able to speak to that. Um, and I also don't know if, you know, there might be differences in Hong Kong compared to, you know, cultural norms in mainland China. Um, I, I have seen other placebo controlled um, therapeutic trials done in China. But, you know, for the reason you're mentioning, uh, Emmy, uh, because we do have a recent negative study of lopinavir ritonavir, it may have kind of been effectively like giving people a placebo because it doesn't seem like lopinavir-ritonavir alone really reduces time to clinical improvement. So it might not actually be too bad of a thing to use that as a, an active control for this study. Interesting. That's an interesting placebo choice. So an expensive placebo. <laughs> so Rahul, what were... What was your read of the the findings of this study? And is this a therapy that you think we should be using or are they using it in Hong Kong? Sure. Um, so as Amy mentioned, the primary outcome in this study, time to negative nasopharyngeal swab, PCR, okay? And with any positive study where there was an association that was found between a treatment and an outcome, I usually start by looking at the protocol to see if the primary outcome uh, was changed. And, you know, this is something I would be interested in if they had chosen a clinical uh, endpoint initially and changed it to a surrogate endpoint. That would kind of raise my alarm bells for um, uh, raising the likelihood of a type 1 error or a false positive. So in the manuscript in on clinicaltrials.gov, they uh, describe how the, the study was powered to um, find a difference in something that was not the primary outcome. And I've talked to a few friends and colleagues about this. This is very unusual. This is not commonly done. If you're going to do a trial, you should make an educated guess about how many people you think you're going to need to see a difference in the outcome you care the most about. But the issue here was that because COVID-19 is a new disease, you know, rapidly emerging, data are changing on a day-to-day -day basis, the authors um, had prior experience with uh, SARS in 2003, and there was some uncontrolled uh, studies at that time that suggested that patients who got uh, lopinavir, ritonavir with ribavirin uh, had reduced mortality in comparison with historical controls who had SARS. So that was the basis for the authors choosing to power the study to look for a relatively large reduction in mortality uh, or the development or ARD of ARDS at 21 days. So they thought they were going to see really sick patients coming into the door, like with SARS in 2003. But it turned out that the spectrum of disease with COVID-19 is much uh, broader. There's many more mild and asymptomatic infections. So their study population was a lot less sick. Fortunately, they did not change the primary outcome. It, it was always time to a negative nasopharyngeal swab, and that remained the case throughout. So this was kind of an unusual decision. But in my view, it doesn't, doesn't really affect the, my interpretation of the results. And this uh, this kind of an outcome, as you you pointed out in your tutorial, this is like a surrogate outcome, and it's not necessarily like a patient centered outcome. Like I don't think patients necessarily care that much, other than being able to get out of the hospital, <laughs> the, the the negative swab. I don't think they could care they would care about it. So it's 
it's, I guess they're trying to just prove that this does something to the virus, but it's, I always like when they choose a clinical endpoint rather than a surrogate. Exactly. And so the, the th- question that we got to ask ourselves is, is there any utility in studying a surrogate outcome like this? We've already talked a lot about how shedding of, or excuse me, detection of a positive uh, PCR from a nasopharyngeal swab, we know that that's not a surrogate for shedding of infectious virus. But I have to believe that the converse or contrapositive, I forget the, <laughs> the, the converse is, is true, where if you're not PCR positive, you're probably not shedding infectious virus. So if that means that these results could have implications for, you know, efforts to reduce transmission. And I emailed the primary author with uh, my question about the power calculations, because this seemed really weird to me. And, you know, we kind of ended up having a, a long, nice email exchange, a really nice guy. Um, and, you know, I asked about the use of interferon in Hong Kong. And after this study was published, it turns out that many hospitals and many centers in Hong Kong kind of adopted the use of interferon um, as standard of care for all patients with COVID-19. And whether or not, you know, that could have had any role in decreasing the, you know, occurrence of severe complications in Hong Kong, which we do know were less, you know, fewer people required ICU care and fewer people died in Hong Kong uh, relative to other places in the world. We, we don't know. There's a lot of other differences about Hong Kong that make it hard to generalize, but food for thought. Yeah. Should we be giving everybody uh, with mild disease like remdesivir and, and this uh, interferon cocktail that they got in this one? I'm waiting to see a study on a six drug cocktail because why not? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Placebo okay. of three drugs against it. What else, what else about this study and any final big conclusions that you took away from it? Sure. I'll say that this population was not very sick. Uh, only 15% of patients uh, required any supplemental O2. Um, fewer than 5% required non-invasive at any point, and only one patient was intubated. Um, and you may ask, uh, why was this study population so well? Well, it's because in Hong Kong, there was a public health ordinance that required anybody who had a positive PCR for COVID-19 to be hospitalized. So that kind of affects our thinking about how to generalize these results to study populations where people are less sick. And, you know, I usually don't make too much about uh, secondary outcomes and subgroup analyses, but the authors uh, did a subgroup analysis of patients who actually received interferon, interferon as part of the triple therapy. Um, because they had a, a, a timeline cutoff where you could only receive interferon if you presented within seven days of symptom onset. And the, the thought behind this was to try to avoid the pro-inflammatory side effect that can sometimes happen, maybe what was responsible for you know hep C treatment being so difficult to tolerate. Knowing that many patients with COVID-19 can start to get sicker in the second week, they wanted to avoid doing anything that could worsen that. So they did a, a secondary uh, or a subgroup analysis where they looked at patients who did receive interferon, so the, the full deal triple therapy compared to just lopinavir ritonavir. And it does seem like that was the group that really drove the benefit. They reduced the time to negative NP swab from 12 and a half to six and a half days. And this difference did not reach statistical significance among patients who didn't receive interferon. I thought what was interesting about what you said here is because we had speculated this on prior episodes that that they were they did treat these patients pretty early, and then the other really interesting thing is that this this whole idea that maybe the interferon would have made people much sicker and like contributed to this like inflammatory cascade syndrome that we think makes people super sick 
that's interesting that they that they were able to do that. I just I feel like what I've seen at Cashlack and in practice right now, the patients that are getting because these therapies are all still experimental in clinical practice, most patients are not getting these drugs unless they're like really, really sick. And then everyone throws the kitchen sink at them. But here they had the benefit of being able to treat them early and they're bringing patients in before anything bad happens. Um, so maybe that's something we need to aspire to. It's a great observation. I mean, this, this study does raise the question, you know, did triple therapy, including interferon, prevent clinical worsening in these patients who had a relatively mild disease? At this point, we don't really know, but that is a testable hypothesis. So I'm going to be uh, keeping my eyes peeled for, for further uh, study in this area. So in my view, the bottom line from, you know, how I kind of appraise this study after putting it all together, um, this trial uh, does provide evidence that among patients who were hospitalized with mild disease from COVID-19, uh, triple therapy, uh, including interferon, was associated with a reduced time to a negative NP swab. And it really did seem like this was driven by patients who received interferon uh, or had their treatment started within seven days of symptom onset. So we really do need further study in sicker patients and using clinical outcomes to, to know more about how this, this uh, triple therapy should be used. Emmy, so you're going to tell us why we should care or what's, what's the utility of these nasopharyngeal swabs? And I know, I know you did a deep dive on, on that kind of testing. So can, what, what do you have to report? Yeah, yeah, we see RT PCR everywhere, and, and it's time to. I had to do a little refresh on what that is. Um, so, polymerase chain reaction—it's a way to detect RNA um, and small, very small amounts, right? So, we know that we have HIV tests undetectable is less than fifteen per milliliter. That's so small. So, what they're doing in the lab is uh, they're amplifying. So, that it's nucleic acid amplification techniques. And they amplify the amount of RNA using a certain DNA primer that we're looking for. So there's multiple primers uh, that they use for SARS-CoV-2 that are very specific to its genome, like the spike protein or the nucleocapsid. And so they're able to amplify it over, you know, up to 40 cycles so that you can detect it by a machine. And... And so this is a, a really good test in a lot of ways because it amplifies DNA, so it makes it very easy to see very small amounts. And, and thus, it's, it's overall very sensitive, and it's quite specific, right, because it has to be that sequence of genome in the sample in order to turn positive. And this is different than, say, antigen testing, which isn't widely used, but there is one uh, FDA emergency use antigen test on the market now, but most places are not using it because antigen testing is picking up big chunks, big proteins like the spike protein of the virus um, and, and uses antibodies to detect that piece of virus. So back to the PCR testing there's the manual tests, and there's a lot of what's called high-throughput machines, which is basically like a easy-bake oven. You know, you have everything in a little cartridge or package, and then you can feed it into the machine, wait anywhere from three to six hours, and bam, you have a result. So there was a, a recently a JWatch study comparing five of these high-throughput machines, showing that their sensitivities are mostly all over 95%. And, and where they come into trouble is if the viral load is very low. You know, if you have 100 copies, it may be missed. 
Um, and the specificity for most of these is 100%, meaning when you're finding a positive PCR, that signifies that there is that RNA in the sample. Isn't there a user user error if I, I think what you what you see people talking about worrying about is did they really get like get that deep nasopharyngeal swab and twist the twist the thing like you're supposed to did they collect it correctly did the study address that are you saying if it's a correctly if it's collected correctly <laughs> did then the sensitivity and specificity are that good Exactly. Yeah. So it all depends on how are you actually collecting the specimen and is there specimen in the place you're collecting it? Yeah. So the, the trial I looked at was in the annals of internal yeah. medicine, the variation in false negative rate in RT-PCR. Um, and it was looking at a bunch of people that we know had SARS-CoV-2 infection and said, when did the PCR actually show up positive? And what is the rate that it was showing a false negative for an overall test of the patient? So it looked at seven different studies um, and 1,330 test samples. And what they assumed is that they knew from all these samples when symptoms started or when the infection occurred, and they assumed that there was a five-day incubation time and that the PCR, you know, had 100% specificity. So if you took a sample from the patient five days prior to symptoms, which was presumed the day of infection, your false negative rate was 100% meaning the day we think everyone gets infected, they will not test positive, right? But then if you look to four days post-exposure, which they're assuming is one day prior to symptoms, your chance of testing negative is 67%. So that's a 67% false negative rate. This is concerning. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And then so, you know, what about the day they had symptoms? So the median false negative rate on the day of symptoms was 38%. So the reverse is 62% of the positive patients were testing positive the day they had symptoms, and 38% were not. Again, this study had a, a pretty large confidence interval. So that false negative rate could have been 18 to 65%. But it makes you rethink, you know, someone comes in with symptoms, you swab them and it's negative. You know, can you really trust that test? Yeah, because Rahul, like we we just talked about this had a very high sensitivity and specificity. Um, and so very high sensitivity should mean that we shouldn't have all these false negatives, right? I was worried you were going to ask me that. because <laughs> I, don't, I just don't understand <laughs> what's happening. So, well, you're not alone. Uh I'll, I'll be honest, I'm not sure I, I fully do either. I mean, the, the observation that I have about this um, pooled analysis is that, that you know, we, we often treat the truth of whether or not somebody has COVID-19 as kind of like a single moment in time. But I think this study really uh, highlights how the test characteristics vary uh, over time in relation to when a patient develops symptoms. So uh, I, I'm as we're talking and getting a little lost in the weeds of the methods here, but that that's my big takeaway from this is that, you know, how confident we can be that a negative swab is a true negative swab really has to be, that judgment has to be made in the context of, you know, does the patient have symptoms or not? 
And this suggests that, you know, patients are more likely to be uh, negative uh, uh, before symptom onset. Yeah, which is, that's, that's challenging because I think it's, we'd all like it. We'd all like it that if just someone has a negative swab, you just say, okay, that, that rules it out. But I think all of us who, I'm not that surprised. I was surprised by the first numbers Emmy was talking about the high sensitivity specificity, because in practice, this kind of seems to be the behavior that we're seeing where you'll, you'll get these patients that you think are going to be positive and they're not positive and you don't believe it. And so you retest them or you just, you just, you know, treat them as if they have it, even if you weren't able to get a positive test from like an upper respiratory specimen. That highlights the value of strategies like retesting, you know, like for uh, acid fast bacilli doing the three induced sputa to increase the sensitivity. I mean, the, in, in that case, you know, there's probably not a, a substantial change from day to day uh, in the amount of uh, acid fast bacilli that are expectorated. But in the case of SARS-CoV-2, uh, it seems to be the case that the closer you get to having symptoms... Um, the more virus you're going to be shedding and the more likely you're going to have a positive test. So it makes me wonder about uh, if there's a role for retesting patients who you still have a high clinical suspicion. And I, I will say, yeah, so the the best time to test based on their analysis was three days after symptoms. So that whole week um, from symptom onset and that first week, um, you're going to get the highest yield. So three days after symptom onset, they, they were catching 80% of the infections. And then the other part about this is this prolonged viral shedding. I know that's been reported for like up to six weeks after, which just, again, doesn't seem to go along with this like false negative thing. So I'm not sure what to do there. Did you read anything helpful about about that? Yeah, and it goes back kind of the CDC guidance where they say, you know, wait three days after symptoms or, or 10 days after um, when the it was diagnosed or started. And the reason they say that is there was a nature paper and it was only nine patients, but it's hard to do these studies where they found that throat swabs had no signs of replication after day five and sputum swabs had no signs of replication after day 10. So we think that after a certain amount of time, you still might have viral pieces in your system that can be picked up when amplified 40 times over, but it might not be multiplying. It probably isn't multiplying. Rahul, we were talking about this before. Have you encountered the patient with the sort of phantom real-time PCR that's positive and you have, they had no symptoms or no, nothing to anchor it to? I sure have. And, you know, I think a lot of people who've been caring for patients with COVID-19, you know, will have faced the dilemma of well, when is somebody sort of safe to discharge home from the hospital. And in the Lancet triple therapy trial, they had a requirement where all patients had to have a negative nasopharyngeal swab uh, times two, uh, 24 hours or greater apart. Um, and I think there, before CDC had guidelines for this, there's a was a lot of variability in what people were doing around the country in the United States. But I think this is the basis, among, uh, along with a few other studies um, for CDC's guidance, that in no patients have with COVID-19 has uh, replication-competent virus been isolated any point after day 10 of symptom onset. So I've cared for patients who have been PCR positive for like four to six weeks. And you know, are those patients still infectious? Probably not so long after they've recovered from their symptoms. And the the last thing I'll say about this is there's been 
there's been these whispers of reinfection. I, I'm still not convinced that reinfection occurs. And most experts, I'll talk about it a little bit with the serology. Most people think that you do get in some perf- protection when you develop antibodies and you and you get an infection to this. And the Korean CDC had some some patients that they seemed to have a negative PCR test that then became positive again, but then they traced those people out and they didn't seem like they were infecting anybody. So they they are not really doing anything about those patients. And and this all goes along with this, that we might detect viral viral material for a long time, but we don't think it's infectious. And you have to be very impressed with how well South Korea is doing I know. contact tracing. <laughs> oh my gosh. I know. They're, it, it's great. We need, we need some of that here. So serology, uh, what's out there? There was a great paper by Teal that was in uh, the Journal of Clinical Microbiology in a- at the end of April. And this this paper, this was a group, they were talking about the various antibody tests that are out there. So there's there's a lot of variation and they're not that heavily regulated. The FDA is basically like, just you know, tell us what you're doing, but they don't really need to get emergency use authorization. Um, it, it's not required. So there's IgA, IgM, and IgG, but the IgG is is what most people think is going to be most useful because it's it's longer lasting and it may be associated with neutralizing antibodies, which we talked last time. Neutralizing antibodies are what can potentially prevent the virus from entering cells and, and offer protection. So the ways we might use these antibody tests in clinical practice uh, one is to identify like people that have already been infected that might be able to donate plasma, um, you know, by checking their titers. We can we can look for zero do zero prevalence studies and try to figure out like what percentage of the population has antibodies and has been exposed. And then uh, another possible is monitoring the response to the vaccination. So if if someone's been vaccinated, like we are going to want to know like you know, the way you get the hepatitis B vaccine series, and sometimes they'll check your titers. So the article that I wanted to present is is by Brian et al. And this was looking at, this was not an industry-funded study, but it was looking at the Abbott SARS-CoV-2 IgG antibody study and the, uh, antibody test, which looks at the nucleocapsid protein. And it seems like this protein, this uh, it seems like this test is very sensitive and specific with the caveat that you have to have to wait a certain time after PCR positivity or after symptom onset. And uh, so at 13 days after their PCR is positive, this is like 100% uh, specific, uh, sensitive and specific. And at 17 days after symptoms, it's 100% sensitive and specific. And as you get closer to the symptoms or closer to the PCR test, the performance isn't as good. Rahul, anything to say about this test uh, so far? Well, I'm definitely not a content expert in uh, you know knowing how antibody tests should be used, but you know just kind of going off of what we the kinds of questions that we have about who has COVID-19 and who doesn't, it seems like the relevant things that you'd want to know are, you know, number 1, do antibodies confer protection and for how long? And number two, you know, what proportion of the population has already been exposed to a disease? And there was a lot of buzz in the the lay press about um, some of the zero survey studies that were done uh, in many places in the country, but, you know, notably in California. And the only point I would make about that is that the um, test characteristics of the test really do matter when you're trying to estimate 
you know, what proportion of the population has been exposed. Um, a specificity of 96%, you know, sounds really good, but if the prevalence of disease is low, then you could easily end up in a situation where you have more uh, false positives than true positives. So the the thing I would uh, advise people to think about when you're you know reading studies about the test characteristics of uh, of antibody tests, in addition to you know what are we testing for and what is the clinical utility, think about the test characteristics because uh, that can really uh, affect your your estimates of prevalence quite a lot. This in the, in this study by Brian et al. They did look they in Boise they tested about forty eight hundred people and they found that the zero prevalence there was like one point eight percent. But the patients kind of had to volunteer. It's it's probably not the most ideal way to test. It wasn't like a random sample. It was just people that volunteered. So probably people that thought were, were very curious about if they had antibodies or not. And the other thing they did do, which I thought was reassuring and, and that I think is important, is they looked at a thousand samples that had been done, bef- that had been taken, and they were from the University of Washington. And these are samples from like before COVID-19 was around. And in those thousand samples, there was only one false positive. So one one of those tests met the threshold that would have been called a positive test. And so that that gave them like a 99.9% specificity based on that. That's really encouraging. That's pretty good. Only yes. one false positive is uh, is is quite impressive. And chances are that was you know a patient who was infected with one of the endemic coronaviruses uh, and you know got unlucky and had some cross reactivity. But that is a suitably high specificity. And and so far they that they have looked at the other coronaviruses and there's there's only like the the amino acid sequence has a only about a 30% homology, whatever that means, between SARS-CoV-2 and the circulating, the four circulating coronaviruses. And what is reassuring about this, these thousand patients is that in in patients over 50 years old, it's very common, uh, like almost 90% of people have antibodies to the, to the common coronaviruses. So the fact that this sample of a thousand patients you know, didn't have a lot of false positives. It, it, things are suggesting there's that these this test at least isn't going to cross react. And what I would just say, what I would leave people with is, if you find out which test you have, try to find out the test characteristics, and then you have to you have to think about how prevalent is the disease in your community. Because if it's low prevalence, and then you, you're going to have more false positives. I couldn't have said it better myself. This has been another episode of The Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Yummy. Get show notes at thecurbsiders.com slash podcast and sign up for our mailing list at thecurbsiders.com slash knowledge food to get our weekly show notes in your inbox. I think that was the first time the person reading that first part actually <laughs> said yummy. Uh, <laughs> so we're committed to providing you with high value practice changing knowledge. To do that, we need your feedback. So please subscribe, rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or contact us at thecurbsiders at gmail.com. A special thanks to our producer for this episode, Deb Gorth. Uh, And a special thanks to our social media team, Hannah R. Abrams, still kind of on Twitter, Beth Garbs Garbatelli, now on Twitter slash Instagram. Welcome to Maddie Morgan. And I will think of a nickname. And uh, thanks to Chris the Chew Man Chew for doing our Facebook. Until next time, I've been Dr. Matthew Frank Wado. I've been Rahul Ganatra. I've been Emmy Elizabeth Okamoto. And this has been Sarah Fidi Roberts. Thank you and good night.
And thanks to our partner, VCU Health Continuing Education, who's helping us offer free CE credits for physicians and other healthcare professionals. Check out curbsiders.vcuhealth.org for more information.